1: Good evening, Toro. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing tonight? Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited
0: for um, our conversation. So um, (laughs) hit me
1: up with your first question. Of course, of course. (laughs) Again, thank you so much for joining me. I'm also excited about this, um, especially because of your background and where I grew up, which we've already spent a lot of time talking about, and we'll get into very briefly. But first... I would like to hear how you describe yourself and what you do.
0: I describe myself as an Amish entrepreneur. I'm an author and the founder of a nonprofit called the Amish Heritage Foundation. My work is to advocate on behalf of Amish, what I call refugees. Uh, Those are people who have chosen to leave the church but I also advocate for those inside the church who don't have the ability to make choices or fight for their own rights, such as the children.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, wow, so that's absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, so I, I grew up in, we talked about this, I grew up in Colorado, in mm-hmm. Indiana, very near Shipshawana. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm very used to the horse and the buggy. So mm-hmm. on the other side, so I've, you know, the English... Looking in, um, going to various shops and things, not really, you know, looking at, um, how a lot of houses have new electricity in the house, but then their barns are all generated up. So what was it like growing up Amish?
0: Well, in, in what way? Can you sort of like <laughs> sure. drill down on that question? Because that's a loaded
1: question. That is a very loaded question. And a big, big <laughs> question. Um, okay, so so you... Man, how do I better describe that one? So I know that at age of 15, you escaped and moved away. Um, so how about... Let's do it the other way. Um, What were... So now, looking back, what were some positive things you took away from your Amish background?
0: Okay. So the positive things were that I appreciated having learned English as a second language, having grown up with more than one language.
1: Right. Wait, and so what do you, do you speak, is it Pennsylvania Dutch?
0: No, I speak Amish. Yeah. Pennsylvania Dutch is a misnomer. It's a label given to people by the outside. We do not speak Dutch at okay. all. Okay. Um, our Originally, um, what we spoke was Bavarian German. Mm-hmm. So it was the dialect from Bavaria, Germany. Okay. But over the course of 300 years, it's evolved into its own language. And if you do the research, we're still not considered by etymologists to have our own language. They say we speak a dialect. Which and that dialect is Pennsylvania, Deutsch or Dutch, which right. is not true at all. Okay. We by socio um, economic linguistic criteria we should have our own language as Amish designated. so that's one of the issues that I work on and and okay. try to get people to understand about our
1: culture. yeah, sure, man, look at that. I grew up in that area and I still didn't know that, okay.
0: Well, well, no one does. No one oh, does sure. because even for those of us who grow up inside the church, we will say we'll regurgitate what outsiders have decided is true for us, what they've decided our story or, or our facts oh. are.
1: Why is it? Is it just because that's just easier to tell you what you already think you know, as opposed to correcting you?
0: Yes, uh, yes, is is mostly, and the okay. reason for that is because. From the inside, our obligation is to maintain good relations with the outside world so the big bad government doesn't take away our religious freedom rights. Gotcha. So whatever so-called academic experts on the Amish say about us, we will regurgitate that. Okay. To maintain that um, peaceful, gentle folk image. Ah, okay. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so um...
0: <laughs> you've never heard this ever. <laughs> no, I haven't.
1: I absolutely no, haven't.
0: Not, I, I, yeah, I know. There's not yeah. nobody's talking about this, and it's um e- even for those of us who leave the church, we're not able to articulate these issues, or we haven't thought about these things because we don't have an education. Our education stops at the eighth grade, and it's an Amish curriculum. Mm-hmm. We don't even have science. Most of us, we, I didn't know what H2O meant until I was 16 years old, and in my first year of high school, um, post-escape. So we're not we're not thinking people. Like we're not analytic-minded people mm. by training. Um, that's all been um, uh, repressed inside okay. the church. So once we leave, you you're either sort of like interested in furthering your own intellectual evolution or not and very few get to the level where um they're able to interact and engage on an academic level with the world at large
1: Oh, okay um so i've just realized this as we're having a conversation i because i grew up around the amish community i may know or be more familiar than the average podcast listener listening this right now so maybe we should just do some. Um, do you have? I, I'm I'm sure you've been probably interviewed about this a thousand times, but do you have like a, like the top ten myths of growing up Amish or the top five myths of like <laughs> beyond the fact that I didn't know that Amish actually speak Amish and not the uh, Pennsylvania Dutch? Um, but like, what other common misconceptions are there about the Amish that the average person does not know?
0: So I would say, uh, one of the top myths would be this, uh, idea of Rumspringe. And that's mm-hmm. been perpetuated by documentaries or reality TV shows. And, uh, the pop, uh, I, in terms of pop culture, the, uh, the belief about Rumspringe is that we actually get a choice, that mm-hmm. Amish kids at a certain age are allowed to leave the community or break the rules and and actually choose whether or not to join the Amish church, to become a baptized member of the church. Mm -hmm. That's not correct. Rumspringa, by definition, designates a period of time. That's all that Rumspringa means. Rumspringa is a period of time from age 16 or 17, depending on the community that you grew up in, Mm -hmm. until the age of marriage inside the Amish church. Then Rumspringa ends. Now, what happens during that period of time, that varies from community to community. Okay. In the big communities where there are hundreds of teenagers in Elkhart or Goshen, Shipshiwana, Indiana, for example, which is what you've experienced, there's hundreds of teenagers. Oh, yeah. So just as in any big city, parents are not able to control their children as much as They would in smaller (laughs) rural towns, right? Right. So the teens will band together. They have that peer support. They go out, they drink, they party, they do drugs, they drive cars, whatever. Mm -hmm. And But at no point in time is that actually sanctioned by the church or the parents. They do not like that that's happening. But they really, what are they going to do about it? They have very little control because, again, too many teens, and it's been happening for a long time. Right. Whereas in the small communities, which is what I grew up in, they um, have restricted the number of families specifically to make sure that the teen population does not become so large as to be able to defy the rules where the parents lose control. Okay. So there's no way in hell I would have ever been able to go out and drink and party and so forth and drive a car. I, I did not have that peer support. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh. And, and, and once again, in either case, it's not a choice. You're not, you are, when you're born Amish in the Amish church, you yeah. are expected to remain, um, a practicing member of the church for the, your entire lifetime that's your okay. obligation
1: okay are you do you ever do the Amish get baptized in the Amish Church or is it just you're you're born into the Amish Church so that is what you shall become
0: yes exactly it's sort of it's like a caste system in that way so okay. if, for anyone who um, is listening who understands a little bit about the caste system in India for example Yes, if you're born in in a certain um, type of family or, um, you know, if you're born, say, Amish versus Mennonite, like you're not supposed to jump over to the Mennonites, even though that gets into fuzzy theological sort of history there, too. Technically, the Mennonites are also going to heaven maybe um but we amish because we we're born amish we're not yeah. allowed to convert that's against the rules okay <laughs> <laughs> i know it's crazy It is. It is. Uh,
1: so what if somebody wanted to convert to being amish how does is that possible how does that work
0: Yes. So actually, that's one of the things you asked earlier about some of the positives. And yeah. and I would say that's one of the positives that I appreciate from a distance um, as a sort of principle. Um, I love the fact that the Amish prohibit proselytization. They do not allow us to actively or even inactively passively try to recruit people to convert to our religion. However, someone from the outside does want to convert in, uh, they will be accepted, but you have to really, really work hard at it. I I mean, you know, this is sort of think of it if you're trying to apply to the Ivy League. I mean, you gotta like really. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Wow. That's a, a very interesting analogy. Yeah. I'm like. <laughs> does somebody work really hard at being. Om- I mean, okay. I got you though. Yeah, like okay. There's the very, the very high standards that they set for for converts. Okay, you have to work extra hard and prove your worth.
0: Exactly, because you are, by virtue of coming in from the outside, are immediately a threat. You don't speak the language. You um have other customs. You have you're not familiar with the culture. The mindset, the mentality of the Amish, all of those are threats to the children. Right. Uh,
1: okay. All right. Um Okay. So, rather, I'll, I can probably easily go down this rabbit hole for a while. So we'll stop after a couple of questions. But so <laughs> I, I have heard, I know this is correct or not. Um, once someone is married, that then the the man will grow his beard. Yes, that is correct. Max. That is correct, like, okay.
0: Yes, and you you are required. That's not an option. You have to oh, okay. grow a beard.
1: Yes. Now, does it? So, why a neck beard versus, like, a full beard?
0: Oh, so you mean why why um, aren't mustaches allowed? Yes,
1: there we go. That's yes. what I meant. Okay, yes. that
0: works so, then. <laughs> <laughs> so, mustaches are prohibited because they uh, – It makes no sense, but they uh, tie it to uh, the military when way back when when um, people in World War Two or World War One or earlier, I don't know, you would see generals with mustaches and somehow that got connected to a militaristic image. So Mm -hmm. that that's the reason for that.
1: (laughs) So, So I guess I so I take it that the Amish do not serve in the military.
0: No, they are uh, conscientious objectors. Okay. They uh, are, um, I don't know that pacifist is the right word because we fight like hell inside our own cultures. You know, we're not pacifists at all amongst right. ourselves. But in terms of, of the government and in terms of, you know, the U.S. military, we're conscious, conscientious objectors. Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Okay. So... Um, Again, so in your own story, you escape at 15. So I I don't want to dig too deep into that, but what does that – because I know you also help others who do that. So what does that mean in the Amish community of escaping?
0: So I literally escaped in the middle of the night. I could not tell my parents. I couldn't tell my siblings, anyone in the community that I wanted to escape. I didn't have anyone inside that I could trust. So mm-hmm. I literally had to escape in the middle of the night. <laughs>
1: right.
0: Other people who leave um, the community sometimes, I mean, they leave, uh, they don't escape. Their parents, for example, I have a friend uh, whose mother actually drove her to Indiana, to Goshen, and dropped her off at some of her. Uh, Amish friends and yeah. said, you know, good riddance. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, they, yeah. So that's every family is different. And, and that yeah. is a rare situation that doesn't happen that often for mm-hmm. someone from a small community. So she does she didn't escape because her parents actually sanctioned her exiting the church and then others mm-hmm. resign and by resign i mean they've already been baptized and or even married and then resign in that way like they leave the church and aren't practicing anymore
1: okay so what was it like being 15 and then suddenly being in a like a world that maybe you didn't quite understand anymore and where did you when you say when you escaped from i think you said you were in michigan where did you escape to
0: I had a couple uncles who had also escaped when they were young, and one of them lived in Wisconsin. He picked me up in the middle of the night, drove over from Wisconsin, picked me up, took me across state lines into Wisconsin, and put me on a train, Amtrak train, out to Montana to my other uncle, who lived out there. So that was my my escape in one sentence or a couple okay. sentences. <laughs>
1: sure 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 <laughs> I don't mean to kind of skip over that part but I know we could go into great detail about well, that
0: Well and and also if people want to hear more details all you have to do is just go on my website and download the uh, a couple chapters that that's yeah. my yeah. Amish childhood you get all the basic details from that
1: <laughs> Right right yeah <laughs> that's true you did write a book about it which we'll we'll get into <laughs> um, okay so So walk me then through your journey from after you escaped until you got into college at Columbia University. And why did you choose an Ivy League school to go to?
0: Good question. Yeah. When I was a little kid, a little Amish kid, somehow I uh, heard about Elvis, Elvis Presley and Harvard University. I don't know how that seeped in. Except to explain that I hung around my dad a lot, and he was not a farmer. He had he was in the construction business and had mm-hmm. non-Amish clients. So sure. I was around my father all the time. I was listening to him have conversations with his, with his non-Amish clients, and they would talk about whatever was going on, pop culture, news of the day, or whatever. And that, I just soaked it in. I was okay. a very unusual kid, uh, very uh, precocious and um somehow i got the understanding that harvard is where the smartest people in the world go you have to be very smart to get into harvard mm-hmm. and i love school i love learning i lived in books i say that books are my passport to the universe that's what um i uh learned about the outside world was really through books so I couldn't really learn that much about the outside world I was observing you guys just as much as you observe us right so there was that distance I could couldn't get very close there was a barrier there but through the books that I read which were classical classic American and British authors back in the day from the 1970s uh, amazing books So that's where I got my, my ideas from. So I thought, okay, I, I want to be, uh, um, a Harvard student. I'm going to go to school at Harvard. And, uh, by the time I escaped, I didn't feel that I would ever be able to go to college. My highest aspiration was to be a valedictorian at high, from high school. Uh, I didn't uh, feel that I could go to college because English isn't my second, isn't my first language and mm-hmm. I was not fluent in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, what happened was that I took a year of college and then my second year I did my GED or technically a high school equivalency diploma. And I completed it in one semester, but I wasn't 18 yet, so I had to stay in school. So my guidance counselor said, hey, I'm sorry, you can't drop out of school. you got to stay in school until you're 18, mm-hmm. so why don't you take a college class? Uh, the high school will pay for it. So I chose English writing mm-hmm. to uh, see if, you know, would I be any good at it? Could I actually do the uh, college-level writing? Mm-hmm. And I aced it. And um, by the time I got to the midterms, um, after I got my midterm exams back, I talked to my guidance counselor and said, Hey, what do I need to do to go to school? I want to, or to college. I want to go to college. So at that point, I still was not confident about my abilities to go to an Ivy League school. And Mm -hmm. I was not going to get a rejection letter because that's the only thing. That's the only thing I base my self-worth on was my academic abilities. I had no other, um, gauge of confidence for myself. I mean, I was, I was, had gone through hell already. I was not affirmed, you know, as a child, um, beyond for whatever reason, I don't understand other than that. Oh, you're smart in school. Mm -hmm. So I clung to that. And, um, so I decided I wanted to travel, and I wanted to visit every country in the world, including go- going into outer space. And the only practical way to do that was to become a pilot. So mm-hmm. I picked a college that had an aviation program, and that landed me in the middle of Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. Dorothy in Kansas. You know, like the wizard right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yeah. So that that would have been what, Kansas University, so the or Kansas State. No,
0: no. So here's the oh, twist. Oh, not
1: even those. Okay.
0: <laughs> no. So I was still grappling with Christianity and whether or not there was a God, or like if I displeased this Judeo-Christian temperamental God, I'd mm-hmm. go to hell. So I was not comfortable going to a state school. I felt that I wouldn't fit in, and that um, the kids just partied, and and I'd just be a misfit. Sure. And so I, I look for Christian universities in yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. And the only school that had an aviation program at the time was this two-year Mennonite liberal arts school, <laughs> Heston College in Heston, Kansas. <laughs> So that's where I ended up at for my first year of college. <laughs> so at age 18, I got wow. my pilot certification, which means I can fly single engine planes. That's and
1: cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty cool. Do you cool. fly? I mean, sorry to get sidetracked. Do you fly no. at all? No?
0: I have not flown in quite a few years. You um, uh, never uh, lose your license. Technically it's a certification, not a license. So you, you right. never lose that. However, you have to stay current. Current means right. you have to do a minimum of three takeoffs and landings and do and no pass your emergency maneuvers. Okay. So I, I'm not current. I, okay. I, all I have to do is just hop in a plane with a flight instructor and get my little signature that I pass the maneuvers. So. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Okay. Sorry to sidetrack you on that one. Okay. Please continue.
0: So then what happened after my first year at Heston College, I was very, very uh, dissatisfied with the school. I felt very um, religiously oppressed, similarly to the Amish. It was, you know, glorified Amish. I was upset that they required me to go to chapel and did not if, uh, did not specify that in the application material. so this is where my legalistic mind comes into play where <laughs> I'm like, when I applied to Hesta nowhere in your application materials did you say that a condition of my being a student or being in good standing was that I go to chapel x times amount x times per week? Mm-hmm. So you cannot force me to go to chapel. <laughs> and I managed to get out of that. Yeah, Not because I won the legal argument, but <laughs> because the only out was to uh, get a, a work-study position during that time. So if you your work-study hours took place during chapel you were not required to go. So that's how I finagled that. And <laughs> 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 um, so after uh, that year, I uh, I did uh, another semester of flight training, but that was in, in Texas where the weather was very calm. The problem was that Nobody in, in higher education, like the federal loans, for example, they would not cover the extra expense of flight training. It's not considered education. And, uh, so, so you had your liberal arts tuition or regular state community college tuition, whatever, on top of the exorbitant, uh, flight training fees. Mm-hmm. And I simply couldn't swing that. My attempt was the reason for moving to Texas was because the flying weather was, uh, a better there where uh, it was not like Kansas where I, I do have to say I'm very happy that I trained in Kansas because you learn how to deal with the winds it, you never knew if you were going to be able to fly that day or if you flew within an hour you could be experiencing all sorts of different types of weather um, or wind patterns and you became a better pilot because of that but it also tacked on additional training time. So I went to Texas because the weather doesn't move there. The wind is <laughs> just static.
1: <laughs> I like that's a good tagline for Texas, where the weather yes. doesn't move.
0: <laughs> After my first semester, I still I still couldn't swing the – uh additional you know to continue getting myself funded so i dropped out of college for 3 years and uh worked for an aviation uh corporation that managed private pilots or other corporate pilots flight schedules and that was where i under or pe- became exposed to the planet as a very finite um sort of existence like it wasn't this mass massive infinite concept (laughs) as before like all of a sudden I began to see the planet and the world in terms of oh it's only six hours to Europe oh it's only Mm -hmm. seven hours to there it's just three hours to South America it's from London it's only six hours or twelve hours to Dubai or whatever so the globe shrunk all of a sudden, things became a lot more possible for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would talk to the pilots and ask them where they were going to places that seemed very exotic to me, and they would talk about it. And, mm-hmm. and I would do, it, I did quite a bit of traveling during that time period. And finally, I decided, okay. I want to be in international affairs. I think that's how I can make the world better. I can, you know, if I go into international affairs, I can bring peace to the world or whatever, you know, which now in hindsight is a very um, naive way of thinking, but that was <laughs> my idealistic mindset was to make the world a better place and the feeling yeah. that I could save the world Um and, And, and that's what I learned in, at Columbia was, no, you, you can't save the world. You can only save yourself. That's a completely different way of thinking. Mm -hmm. And at that point, then after three years, I, uh, realized that I didn't have, um, this would be my last shot at uh, applying as an undergrad to Harvard. And I didn't want to live a life of regrets, so I risked the rejection letter. And I always joke that Harvard rejected me before they got my application. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. <laughs> that application arrived the next day. I swear. <laughs> I mean, <Wow>. that rejection. <laughs> <laughs> and I was crushed. I I That was the end of the world for me. What that meant to me was I wasn't smart, that I was didn't have the ability to um, be one of the educated intellectual elites of the world. Mm-hmm. And I had applied at, to Columbia University in New York City as my backup school, and I say Really, in my mind, it was a backup school. I had never heard of Columbia University before. I had only looked up the list of Ivy League schools because I'm practical. And, okay, well, I want to live in New York. And, oh, by the way, Columbia just happens to be there. And so I'll apply, but I, I'm not going to need it because Harvard's going to take me. <laughs> and Columbia accepted me. And, um, I really felt like I was going to a second rate school. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm sure they're excited to hear that.
0: <laughs> oh, the, the Dean loves me, or at least who's now the ex-Dean. I mean, yeah. I, I, love them. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm sure my undergrad experience would have been fabulous at Harvard, but I'm glad that it was Columbia. New York City, Embrace Me, Columbia, Embrace Me. Columbia has this undergrad program for non-traditional students. It's called the School of General Studies. Mm-hmm. And it's for people who have weird, non-traditional, crazy backgrounds like me. And the average age of the students is in their late 20s. And it was the perfect fit for me. I could not have found a school that was a better fit and more supportive and more enthusiastic and embracing of me than, than Columbia's GS program. Mm-hmm. And that was, I'm, I still live in New York City and I'm still involved, um, active with Columbia. It, it's my family. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's
1: wonderful. So how did, How did MTV become involved in your story?
0: MTV happened after I graduated. I got an email from somebody saying, hey, um, we pitched this um, idea to MTV and we're looking for somebody who has escaped the community, the Amish, and wants to share their story. Mm-hmm. And the title of the episode is "I'm Ex Amish," and it's part of their True Life series, MTV's True Life series, which is their documentary branch. It's not. I think
1: I've seen that one. Have you really? I yeah. think so. I used to really, I used to watch a lot of MTV back when they had like music videos and other. But I think I saw this. I think I may have seen this. Tr- your True Life.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. So uh, they they came to me and uh, asked me if uh I would be able to help them find people or uh, direct them in any way. And I said, well, you know, I'd be willing to share my story. I'm writing my memoir. I um, want to, you know, get some visibility and, and, um, I, I know all the right people anyway. I mean, I can hook you up. So, um, they said, sure. And, <laughs> and all the people on there, uh, uh, are because of me Um I, I'm going to take the credit for it <laughs>
1: as well as you should
0: um, the wonderful really wonderful thing that came out of it is that the production company Cora Films that was that was the production company that pitched it to MTV and who produced it, who I worked with who approached me mm-hmm. um, Henry and I uh, became very close friends he's like a brother to me he's just amazing and, um, he's just, yeah, incredible and does just amazing work. He's actually, for people who are in the documentary world, he's a protege of David Mazel's of the Mazel brothers, uh, Mazel's brothers. So that means something for people in, you know, documentary world. I mean, it's a very, it's sort of, you know, the Ivy League of documentary filmmaking sort of legacy. So, <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, it was definitely a very good experience for me.
1: Wonderful. And then, so what, so you said you you just mentioned then your book while well, you were you were in the process of writing at the time. What, mm-hmm. so what made you want to write a book and tell your story?
0: Before I left, um, when I was maybe around between 11, 13 years old, something like that, I wanted to uh, write a book about my story. I felt that uh, this is, what I would do just as a natural part of my trajectory if I made it in the world outside. And uh, the reason specifically later on became to talk about the sexual assaults that I experienced from two of my uncles, the ones that I mentioned earlier who helped me escape. Both of them raped me repeatedly, instant, immediately after I um, stayed at their houses. So this happened for the first year after my escape. And the first uncle, Harvey Bell was mm-hmm. in Montana, uh, told me the, the day after the first occurrence that if you ever tell anyone, I'm going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And that is what bought my silence for 13 years. I knew that I had no doubt on my mind that he'd kill me or send someone after me if he suspected that I'd tell anyone. So
1: right.
0: when I managed to escape from his house and go to my uncle Enos Bontrager in Wisconsin, I thought I was safe there. And the same thing happened there with yeah. him. And I couldn't report him because, you know, Harv would find out about it and send someone after to kill me. I mean, that was the fear yeah. for that. That, um, kept me from saying anything. And I knew that the only way I could talk about it would be through a book because I didn't feel that anybody would be able to really help me. I, I didn't, my experience had been that if I went to somebody to try to talk about my issues growing up, like the traumas and abuses, um, everybody was always fascinated about, oh, the Amish, you know, it's like kind of like being a celebrity where it's like, oh, you, you know, you, you're this celebrity and, and people are fascinated because they think you're, you know, this, you know, it's sort of like that branding of it and mm-hmm. they can't see beyond that image to right. see that you're a human being you're a person like anyone else with your own pains and sorrows and challenges. So that was what, made me feel like I couldn't ever talk about what happened except through a book. Mm-hmm. And then when I started writing the book, which was right after I graduated, I hit a wall when I realized that I couldn't even um think the word Right? How was I going to write the word if I couldn't even think it? I mean, that traumatized me, re-traumatized me. Mm-hmm. And that just... You know, for a couple of years, I was a complete mess, a complete wreck. Like, uh, you know, that's a whole other episode or story about what it's like to live in New York, like couch surfing and and doing coke and all of that kind of stuff. And yeah. <laughs> I mean, um yeah, like it, it it was yeah, like horrible. And it was all all a product of you know the PTSD, the traumatization. Mm-hmm not feeling like anyone was there to support me, not knowing how to find anyone. And Henry, back to MTV and mm-hmm. the Cora Films producer, he is the first person I told um, about what happened. Like after working with him over the course of of quite a, you know, several months, maybe almost a year, however long the production was, um, uh, I told him at the end Okay, this is what happened to me. And it took that long for me to build up that trust. And he put me in touch with some really amazing people in New York City who Mm -hmm. were able to help me and, and all of that. So yeah, he's definitely a brother.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, So, so after then you, you published your book, when, so I guess what's, what happened in between you graduating? From Columbia and then you starting your own because um, right now you do consulting work uh, with was it is it trauma victims or is it um, yes yes, yes. Uh, so, sexual yeah. Harassment, yeah sexual assault survivors so where was what was the journey like in between you graduating and then you uh, getting involved in this work
0: that was a long period of time uh, I graduated in 2007, and I didn't actually end up publishing my book until 2017, 10 years later, my memoir. It took that long. And uh, I started a podcast in the beginning of 2017, February of 2017. And the idea was to find other um, uh, uh, survivors of sexual assault. But at that time, I couldn't even uh, use the word sexual assault. I had to use trauma because people were not receptive to that word. This was before the Me Too movement. So the Me Too movement took off in October of 2017. I launched that podcast in February of that year, just ahead of my memoir. What I realized as a marketing professional, my background is in, you know, marketing consulting. I um, did it for clients in New York um, and elsewhere throughout those 10 years as well mm-hmm. and I realized that I could market my memoir for a couple of years but at the end of the day people are just going to say oh it's an isolated incident oh it really doesn't happen oh this really doesn't happen among the Amish I mean that's an anomaly blah 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 blah, blah. so I, I thought okay well if I have a podcast that every week a new story is coming out of, from a survivor, you can't not, um, aden- I mean, you, you just can't ignore that. Right. And, uh, so I began finding, I did find, uh, some other, uh, Amish, uh, survivors and escapees and people who left the church. And I also found, um, a lot, lots of entrepreneurs who were willing to talk about their traumas. Again, Lots, most of them did not say that they were assaulted, but some mm-hmm. of them did, and it was always pitched to them as you know what kind of traumatic things have you overcome or whatever and then, after um me too, everybody was was willing to acknowledge it. <laughs> you know it was no yeah. longer an issue, so it's very interesting to see that and now, uh in twenty eighteen, the idea was to focus on just getting survivors, sexual assault survivors memoirs out to help them uh, talk about their survivor experiences. So in terms of the memoir um, genre, there's nobody that I have found, or at least not as of several months ago or whenever I first started it, nobody specializes in uh, helping those who've, who've survived from assault. And that's a different kind of sort of like you need this emotional support from a coach or mentor who's been through it. And that's kind of, you know, my specialty is just helping people get their voice back and okay. own their traumas.
1: Sure. Oh, good. Yeah. And then so I know you mentioned this earlier, but so you when did you start the Amish Heritage Foundation and what made you want to start that and and do that nonprofit work?
0: so that that's another thing that's a product of of one of my childhood vows.' <laughs> it's yeah. like these things just don't leave me alone I guess not. <laughs> and when I was a little kid like uh, when, and I say a teenager around thirteen or so, I read the Underground Railroad about Harriet Tubman, so that was my first female hero there mm-hmm. There are no female heroes in Amish culture, none. And I found uh, uh, Harriet Tubman. I was very inspired by her. And I thought, oh, like, again, once again, if I'm successful, I'll I'll create a system like this because there's nothing that exists to help those who don't want to be inside the church to transition outside successfully. Mm -hmm. And the plan had not been to start the nonprofit this year. The plan was I'm going on my book tour and I'm helping others. Uh, talk about their stories and write their stories, but the nonprofit just, it decided it wanted to come first. And <laughs> <laughs> so I, uh, I actually got a call in or an email in uh, around January, February of this year from Elon Zook, who's my nonprofit partner. And he grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And he said, Tora, um, you, are you still planning on doing this nonprofit? Because I, I'm uh, sick of trying to get my voice heard inside the, uh, academic community here. And, um, you know, just wondering if, if you want to do something with me. And I'm like, um, hell yes. <laughs> I've been <laughs> working on him for six years. It was six years trying to get him to yeah. <laughs> partner up with me because he's the only Person I had found who was able to talk about the issues and and relate to, to convey the issues to those outside the communities um, as well as inside. So that's a difficult bridge. And that's, you know, I came to Lancaster and we did this little thing where um, I sat down and said, well, hypothetically, what would a conference look like if we were to do a conference? You know, let's just imagine what that might be. And, uh, and, he thought it was hypothetical and I knew it was. <laughs> <laughs> and before we knew it, we have these amazing speakers who like, just said yes and agreed to support us. And it's just been phenomenal. And I, that actually is an example of, of why I wanted to go to an Ivy league school, which is what mm-hmm. you had asked earlier, you know, why an Ivy league for some reason somehow I understood that that the what I was paying for wasn't Mm -hmm. as much the education I mean you can get a very good education in top tier schools it's really about the name and the network Mm -hmm. so if you can figure out how to leverage that that's what the that's what you're paying for and getting this amazing lineup of speakers, like a Pulitzer-nominated author and attorney, um, a member on the Council of Foreign Relations to, you know, both of them. One is speaking on Friday, delivering the keynote, the other on Saturday. And then just these incredible people from other organizations and backgrounds. I mean, we, we have five out of the eight Ivy Leagues represented. <laughs> wow. And, and we have people from native americans native navajo um muslim ex muslim similar to the work that we're doing a founder um from uh, somebody from uh the ultra orthodox jewish um who es- escaped or left that and is now going to school and doing all these amazing you know research studies and and um uh people who have are dissatisfied with the Mennonite church as well. So there's this, and oh, conservative Muslim, even people who mm. still identify, you know, are practicing conservative, but they uh, have an audience, um, you know, they want to engage with us. So it's, it's pretty awesome.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. So could you tell me more about that event? So when, when is it happening? Where is it happening? What kind of people would you like to attend? <laughs>
0: Everybody who's listening to this should come. <laughs> yeah. So it's happening. It's called the conference is called Disrupting History, Reclaiming Our Amish Story. And it's exactly that. We're disrupting mm-hmm. history. We're taking back our narrative. And it's happening September twenty eighth and twenty nine, which is in Lancaster, uh, Pennsylvania, Franklin and Marshall College, and it's half academic and half TED Talk esque. So our um, audience is some of them are going to be there because they're interested in it from an academic perspective and others are interested in it from an entrepreneurial social justice kind of, you know, um, perspective. Mm-hmm. And um, I formatted it according to sort of like the TED talks, because I want us to be able to go and publish it on YouTube and have people be able to get the main points without having to go through piles and piles of academic language and <laughs> boring shit to figure sure. out what's being said. <laughs> <laughs> I guess
1: Yeah. You know, sometimes so academic conferences are great, but you're right. Oftentimes you have to get through the academic language to understand what exactly. is going on in it.
0: Yeah. 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 So it, it's not your typical academic conference. It's, it's, okay. it's, um, it's geared towards millennials, entrepreneurs who want to do good in the world and who mm-hmm. are aware of the power we have, um, when we empower ourselves. And it, the message is really just, you know, about being the change that we want to see in the world.
1: Oh yeah. That's great. What's, uh, what's the website then for more information?
0: Amishheritage.org. A-M-I-S-H, heritage, H-E-R-I-T-A-G-E dot org. Or just Google my name and, and you'll (laughs) find it. (laughs) sure.
1: Sure. So with, so with everything that you've done and your story, the idea of overcoming fear comes up. Um, how those times when you are find fear, how do you work past it? Are there there strategies to come up with or is it just necessity or how do you deal with fear these days?
0: Uh, Well, good question. I'll talk about the fear when I was a kid thinking about leaving or escaping. Mm -hmm. And that was not so much uh, fear isn't the right word, but desperation. It was literally I need to, to figure out a way to escape or I will die. And that is a different kind of um, feeling. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's just desperate to survive versus like it kind of overrides your generic fear. Um, and today, in terms of how do I overcome fear, I feel like I'm just such a an embattled veteran of challenges and impossibles that it's. Not really such a big deal, but this is on the heels of 22 years of, of doing everything that I wasn't supposed to be doing and that shouldn't have happened. So it's a little hard to talk about it now. That's not to say that I don't experience these fears. For example, this conference, I have nights when I'm awake at night and I'm wondering how the fuck am I going to sell enough tickets or make sure this, this you know, gets, <laughs> gets done and right. it's, an, it's a success. I mean, I have those moments. and um, But I feel it, it's sort of the thing that's important to keep in mind, maybe for anyone who's listening, is that you have to listen to your gut, your instinct. If your heart, instinct, gut, what, however you want to say it, if that is what's being said to you, it's from that space, Stick with it and just keep your eye on that and things will somehow come to pass. And, and it doesn't mean that it's not going to come without challenges. It doesn't mean that it's not going to come without freaking out in the middle of the night. Oh, fuck, what have I done? <laughs> but you have to believe in yourself. You just you have to have this blind, irrational belief in yourself.
1: Hmm. So in in your journey so far, what would you say has been the best investment you've ever made?
0: Investing in myself.
1: No, that's good. Is there? <laughs> I, I know because I know you've so you've you've spoken highly of going to do Columbia, but are there other other ways that you have? I mean, beyond I guess like reading and education, like is that has that been? what you mean by investing in yourself in this or are there other aspects of that as well?
0: Yes, all of it. And definitely. So I, I spent a shitload going to you know, Columbia university <laughs> and then I spent more than a shitload after that. <laughs> Cause then I had to deal with all my childhood traumas and all the um beliefs that I had grown up with that were not helping me at all, that were actually harming me. And you don't learn that in an academic setting. No. You don't learn that at Columbia University. You are taught how to be an excellent academic. You're not taught how to address your own shit and get beyond that. And you're also not taught entrepreneurship. That's not what the academic system is about. So I have invested in both and, uh, it took a lot of hard work and, um, learning how to value myself was really one of the, I mean, the most important thing to value myself and love myself was the hardest thing for me to learn. Mm -hmm. And going to an Ivy League school and escaping at age 15 did not teach me how to love myself or value myself. I didn't learn that until after I graduated.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. As so on the entrepreneurship side, were there are there books that you that helped th- the most, or were there like courses that you took?
0: Yes. So one of the um earliest books, the first books I read that helped me the most in the entrepreneur space was Never Eat Alone by um, Keith Ferrazzi. I think is how you Ferrazzi is how you Ferrazzi. pronounce this last. Mm-hmm. Yeah and that i uh, that really sort of started percolating in my brain i read that when i was still a student at columbia but it didn't really go anywhere until after i graduated and then when tim ferriss's book the 4-hour work week came out that was became my bible i felt for the first time that somebody understood um what I was going through that spoke the same language that I spoke. So that really was like, oh wow, there's a set of people in the world who have these wild, crazy, weird ways of being in the world who also happen to come from acad- you know, academia, Ivy League caliber types of backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh I have uh I found some really good mentors, amazing mentors. I, I managed to somehow learn how to pick the right Mentors, and I just want to say to anyone listening is I, the entrepreneur space, the self-help, personal development. I mean, it, it's a free-for-all, just like anything else. You have to learn how to trust the right people, how to discern. So you pick the right people that are able to help you. And I, you know, figured out finally after <laughs> putting a lot of money in the wrong places, um, how to, uh, find someone who could help me, and now I'm part of a really amazing entrepreneur circle that I just I feel so privileged to be a part of. Is really just incredible people. So yeah. Oh, wonderful.
1: <laughs> what would you say has been the best advice you've ever received? Ooh, best advice I ever received.
0: Yeah, that's like, you know, I don't think I've, I've ever really thought about that. Um, it was more a feeling, the messaging that I got from childhood onwards through reading books mm-hmm. about you don't have to depend on adults or anyone else to do what you want to do. So the the books so I, I don't have some pithy line or whatever that I can throw out. Mm-hmm. Um the books that I read from age six onwards when I learned English, the children, the characters of the children, the authors were very child empowering. And lots of the stories were about children who came from abusive backgrounds. Who didn't have parents who loved them or supported them, and the children struck out on their own and provided for themselves. And that's the message that I got was that you don't have to uh, depend on adults to do what you need to do in life for yourself. Mm-hmm. And that is a comes with a double-edged sword because it can go to the extreme <coughs> to the extreme of where you don't trust anyone which is where i went for Mm -hmm. most of my life i didn't learn how to truly trust until i was in you know around 29 onwards
1: oh yeah oh sure Torah, thank you so much for taking the time today to chat (laughs) with me this has been absolutely amazing um if the listeners would want to see more about what you're working on and, and listen to more of what you're working on, where does the best place they can go to find that? Go
0: to www.amishheritage.org. And you can find me everywhere through that or go online, find me Torabon Traeger on Facebook, Twitter, um, Instagram. Uh, just yeah. Google my name. You, you don't even have to go to a website. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. I will put
1: some of those links in the show notes so they can also click through in addition to just Googling your name. <laughs> awesome. Well, again, thank you so much. You've been more of the genesis of your time, Tora. Thank you again.
0: For sure. Thank you so much, too.
1: <laughs> thank you for listening to another episode of the Advance Your Hour podcast.